Yes, in South Africa, there have been some new uh, strains, BA4 and 5. They don't seem to be that much more infectious than the BA2, which is actually taking over in the United States. Whether they will take over in the United States, it's unlikely, but they're worth keeping an eye on. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Uh, Fred and Bill, uh, again, thanks for making time for us and uh, sharing some perspectives. Uh, over the last week plus, uh, there's been uh, considerable, I'll call it vaccine news. Uh, can you bring us up to date in terms of uh, what's happening and, and some of the recent disclosures and approvals? Sure. So there's, yeah, after several months now of basically no hard news on vaccines, there have been five major issues in just the last week to 10 days. All of these surround the FDA announced that they are going to have a series of advisory committee meetings over the course of the month of June. So this starts with June 7th. They're reviewing Novavax's um, application for approval, for authorization, emergency use authorization in the United States. Commercially, that means nothing because Novavax is not going to be a significant uh, commercial vaccine in the United States. But once the U.S. Approve, uh, authorizes it through the EUA, there are many other countries in the world that key off of what the U.S. FDA does and then, then will approve it. And Novavax, because of its storage and transportation requirements being relatively easy, has a will have a huge international presence. It already has an international presence, but it's going to have a much larger international presence. The other thing about that is that Novavax is still working towards their combined COVID flu vaccine. Now, that's a bit of a gamble for them because who knows, are we going to need it two years from now? They have said they will not make it ready for this this coming uh, cold flu COVID season, but they're targeting 2023. If they get their Novavax COVID vaccine approved, it's going to kind of grease the skids for getting the combined vaccine approved for next year. The second one is that the FDA committees are going to review the Pfizer and Moderna requests to extend their emergency use authorizations to address children six months to five years old. This stands to be the most controversial issue that's coming up. And the reason for that is that the efficacy in preventing symptomatic vaccine just barely meets the threshold for what a priori, the FDA said was their threshold. They said 50%, and it's 51%. The, the fly in the ointment, though, is that there is no benefit shown. Or I should say they, were, they could not draw any conclusions. Not that there was no benefit, but they could not draw any conclusions as to whether this prevented severe disease. And the reason was they didn't have any severe disease in either arm, either the, the vaccinated or the unvaccinated. So there was not enough, even with a very large sample size, they, it could not draw any statistically relevant conclusion. So if that gets down to then you have a, a vaccine that only marginally may be beneficial for just preventing symptoms. No idea whether it prevents infection or not. So this is, this is why this is going to be so controversial. Then they're also going to review Moderna for use in children 5 to 17. Um, that's not as controversial. It's, um, the Moderna hasn't fully released the results yet, but it looks like they're going to be, as they have been in everything else, very comparable to uh, Pfizer's um, and, and 
they so far what the the word is is that it's not showing any significant um, uh, myocarditis problems with the vaccine, but that's not out yet. And then finally, this is not really something that the committees are formally reviewing, but it certainly will be discussed, is both Pfizer and Moderna have announced that they expect to have Omicron-specific vaccines available for the fall cold flu COVID season. Moderna said that they expect to have them available in commercial quantities, assuming all the approvals go through. Uh, Pfizer says that they expect to be ready to release, but it's unclear that they would be have it ready in commercial quantities. So those are the four major um, approval-related things. And then the one other one, which I just heard about just before we started, is that the uh, FDA emergency use authorization for the J&J vaccine was, was discontinued, so it is no longer authorized. Fred, your thoughts? I know you've been following. Yeah, well, the J&J has been a concern uh, for some time in that there is this dural sinus thrombosis associated, which is, it's rare, but it's quite devastating. And they've had a number of more cases uh, uh, recently, and therefore they've chosen now to with, uh, withdraw J&J, at least temporarily, because of this serious what it does is a, a, a thrombosis of the large uh, veins of the brain, and that can cause uh, severe cerebral edema or even death. So it is a very serious complication. It's very rare, but they're getting a signal that's stronger than it was before, and therefore have chosen to stop uh, J&J uh, administration for now. One other quick vaccine issue is that there are a lot of vaccines that are in the pipeline, but just to highlight the um, a team that's been being, it's a university-based team, but actually being led primarily by the U.S. Army, the, specifically the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, is developing a vaccine that will, appears to be effective against all coronaviruses. So SARS-CoV-2, but as well as SARS, as well as the minimally pathogenic coronaviruses that have been around for, you know, millennia. So that'd be very interesting what happens with that. Um, they that will not be hap- coming out in the ne- in the near future, but over the next two years, this is going to be one one to watch. In fact, Bill, I was going to ask about this because uh, one of the unintended consequences of the uh, search for a vaccine here uh, appears to be the opening up of various uh, promising developments around the ability of vaccines to treat a a broad array of potential um, illnesses. And um, maybe I could just ask you to expand a little bit about um, some of the things that you're aware of that companies are working on. Well, this one specifically is a, um, it it is not a, mRNA vaccine. It is more of a traditional type of vaccine. Um, it's being done, the, I say, with multiple universities. The primary university is um, in Ireland, uh, but they expect it's going to be, they're just moving this this quarter, they're moving into human trials. So at phase one, you know, if it was being pushed as hard as the, uh, the, the phase one trials were with the original mRNA vaccines, it could potentially be out by the end of the year. But I don't think we're going to, it's, it's not moving that quickly because of where we were. But there are um, at least, the most recent data I saw, at least nine vaccines for, uh, that may have 
benefit against be more than just SARS-CoV-2 um, that are it, that are moving into at or near moving into human trials. So, as you said, this is I mean the, we we could be finding the cure for a, not maybe not the cure for all the common cold, but a cure for a quarter of the common colds, which is what COVID what co- uh, coronaviruses are responsible for. Fred and Bill, uh, there are also over the last uh, ten days or so additional reports of different variants around the world, and I thought maybe you could shed some light and whether you think there will be uh, particular implications here uh, for these variants. Yes, in South Africa, there have been some new uh, strains, BA4 and 5. Uh, They don't seem to be that much more infectious than the BA2, which was about 30% more infectious than BA1. So that is actually taken, BA2 is actually taking over in the United States, and I think now is the dominant strain. Uh, whether these two are going to, they don't seem to be any more severe, uh, whether they will take over in the United States, it's unlikely, but uh, they're worth keeping an eye on. And in addition, there's the BA4 and BA5 that are showing up in South Africa. The reason that has people concerned is they initially emerged in um, Botswana, which is just north of South Africa, then migrated to South Africa. That's exactly what the original Omicron did. The difference is that the original Omicron very rapidly moved into primarily the UK and then from the UK out to the rest of the world. BA4 and BA5 um, don't they don't show any sign of breaking out of South Africa, uh, nor do they show any sign of actually being a severe disease. They're, they uh, are, are somewhat more infectious, they believe, than BA2 is, but they're not making a big impact even in South Africa, and certainly not in terms of hospitalizations or deaths. Any impact on global travel, any guidance that you're offering clients in light of the current data in terms of their travel? Um, visiting uh, public events and things like that. So the way I'm looking at it right now is if we look around the world, the place that's really having the most issue is the United States, Um, or I should say North America in general, and especially the United States. In in Europe, most countries are on the way back down. Um, Germany, as of the end of last week, one in seven cases of COVID in the whole world were being reported in Germany. But Germany is now down um, probably about a third of where they were at their peak. Um, and to some extent, the, the numbers may have been inflated because Germans are very good about reporting their cases. They are told to report them. They report them. Um, elsewhere in the world, there are very, very few countries that are showing new peaks um, or even having significant increases in case counts. The only other one, in addition to Germany, were and I said Germany's going down, but the one that is going up and it is at a new peak is Taiwan. But the rest of the world, in terms of international travel, um, is doing pretty well. The United States, however, we continue to see this slow, steady increase. Um, And it's it's due to BA2 and BA2.12.1, quite a word and number salad there. But if we were to follow what happened in the United Kingdom, they went up over a course of about four to six weeks and then came back down. 
and it was caused by the same variants, BA2 and then the BA2.12. Um, I think it's reasonable to think that we're going to go up. Ours may be extended out a little bit because ours is hitting in spring. People are outdoors. We have a pretty high vaccination rate. So it's muting the, the rays in this. But I think what that may also do is kind of flatten it and spread it out a little bit. I still think, and I, I it's, this is crystal ball thinking. I don't have any, I don't, I, can't, I don't have proof of this, but I still think that over the next couple of weeks um, in the United States, especially New York State, which is the um, the epicenter of all this right now, is going to peak out and probably start coming back down. The alternative would be that it just this slow, steady rise just keeps up for for multiple weeks. I don't think we're going to see that. Um, so that's where things stand. I, I'm, I'm in the midst of traveling right now. Um, I'm not uncomfortable with traveling, including internationally. I was going to ask, uh, Bill, when you're traveling, mask on or mask off? Yeah, so that's an excellent question because I, I am, and, and as people who have listened to this throughout, people know that I am not the not the, I don't want to say I'm not an advocate for masking because I know, and, and Fred, he'll, he can talk about how he thinks that masks are very important. I have not been as as hard, hard over on the masks because I think, for one thing, most people don't wear masks correctly. But what I'm doing on travel is when I am in the in crowded parts of the airport, such as the TSA lines or lining up to get on the airport or on the airplane, um, going down the jetway, and during the whole boarding process, I'm wearing a mask. Once the plane's engines start, you're in one of the most air-purified environments that there is. You're running through, you're bringing in outside air, you're running through HEPA filters. The inside of a plane is, it's not sterile, but it's its almost as clean as a um, as an operating room is because of the way they purify the air. Um, so I'm, I'm taking my mask off during flight, putting it on again when everyone starts deplaning. Uh, so that's my approach to, to wearing a mask with travel. I'm a little more conservative than Bill, uh, but I'm wearing a mask uh, the entire time I'm on the plane. And one of the big problems is when the plane shuts, when the plane lands, they shut off uh, the ventilation, and then there could be a significant buildup in aerosol during that period. So um, right now, I'm I'm a little concerned about traveling uh, because only about I would say a quarter of people are wearing masks. So if someone sits next to you and is infected and they're not wearing a mask, uh, even if you're wearing a mask, there's a pretty significant likelihood that you may become infected. So I'm a little worried right now about travel, actually, because of the lack of masks on planes. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. If the engines are not running, have a mask on. I, I fully agree with that. It's just when the engines are running, they, they, there is so much ventilation that I'm, I feel more comfortable. Now, don't get me wrong. If I was somebody, if I was, if I was a little older than I am or had any risk factors, I'd wear a mask and I'd wear a high-quality mask the whole time. Yeah, I think the key is you want an N95 exactly. uh, mask or, or equivalent to it. And I uh, would just add, I assume similar advice for people who may be eligible for and contemplating getting uh, a second booster um, around their uh, vaccines. Well, that's actually an important issue, and I would be interested in Fred's thoughts on this. With the second booster now, especially that Pfizer and Moderna both are saying, especially Moderna, saying that they should have boosters that are uh, Omicron-specific available in the 
early part of the fall of this year. Does getting a booster now at all impact the effectiveness, the probable effectiveness of a booster with an Omicron specificity in the fall? I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, that, that I, I don't think we know the answer to that. Uh, I, I, we've had used boosters uh, and repeated vaccines in the past, and they don't necessarily, you don't see a reduction in response after an interval of time. I guess one of the concerns is if we get too much, maybe they'll develop, people will develop tolerance. But I have, I've been on the lookout for that particular issue and, and have not uh, encountered it as yet. I don't know if you have, Bill. No, the only thing that I've I've read, and I haven't read anybody who says anything definitive, but just is, is commenting on the possibility, is that the Omicron vaccine is similar enough to the existing um, antigens that it's very possible that if, if you have lots of antibodies running around to the original vaccines, to the original virus, um, and you get this new one, that your body may chew up the vaccine before it has a chance to develop an immune response to it. So it would still work as a, as a good booster for the original COVID, but it would not uh, give you enough Omicron responses to have, uh, have good effectiveness. But there is no good data that shows that at all. That's what we're waiting, waiting to see. Bill, I don't know whether the term uh, perfection is the enemy of the good applies here. Um, I can only report anecdotally from New York. A lot of people uh, continue, uh, people who have actually been compliant with the getting two vaccines and a booster, and, uh, you know, at least at this point, I think at the tail end of this, um, seem to be coming down with COVID. Uh, you have to be wary of what the data says and what, anecdotally what your circle of relationships and friends say, but uh, a lot of people, you know, are, are coming down with this. And sometimes it's actually pretty challenging, notwithstanding people of uh, who are just middle-aged and not senior citizens, and they don't, don't have uh, pre-occurring significant uh, health risks. So along those lines, one other uh, good issue to talk about um, is the is what's happening with Paxlovid. Uh, there's been a lot of news reports in the past few days, past week or so, about people who take Paxlovid and then having about seven to ten days, seven days plus or minus, um, after they finish the course of Paxlovid, they have a recurrence of symptoms and a recurrence of positive antigen test. Um, I've actually had it in two patients that I've worked with. Um, the patients I've seen and, and almost all the patients I've read about, when they have this recurrence of symptoms and recurrence of positivity, it's very minor. Um, I have seen a couple of reports of, of patients that had were actually more severely ill after uh, this recurrence than they were with the original, uh, with, with whatever they had before they started taking the Paxlovid. Um, I'm, it's not changing my prescribing approach to Paxlovid at all, though, because we're not seeing it in a high percentage of patients. And in everyone I've seen and almost everybody I've read about, uh, they've, they do very well after, the, after having the, uh, if they have a recurrence. So I'm not too worried about it. Uh, the Paxlovid hasn't been used as much as I would like in Florida right as yet. I'm hoping it's going to be used more. Um, it's it's very uh, possible that some you know five days of Paxlovid won't be sufficient and that the virus could uh, temporarily relapse. So uh, that is a concern. 
And I don't know, Bill, but I, it would make sense. Perhaps they should add, uh, go with another five-day course. I don't know what they're doing in that circumstance. Um, FDA has actually said, no, that is not authorized. Read the, they've, said, they've said basically, read the EUA. Now, are they going to change it with, as they get more data coming in? It's very, very much unclear. But it's acting almost like the Paxlovid is, I, I've never heard this term used, so I may be inventing one, but vi- virus static. Um, it's, it's keeping the virus from growing, but it's not eliminating the virus. Um, so, I, I mean... I don't. I don't think it's it's having a huge impact, but it is something for people and providers to be aware of. Just on a uh, closing note, Bill, I know you've been following uh, some of the data coming out of China, and uh, most recently out of Beijing. Maybe you can give us a quick overview. So the biggest thing I'd say is that Shanghai looks like it's coming out of it. However, Beijing, they said, no, we're not having any problems as they closed down the subway system throughout Beijing. You don't close the subways when you're not having any problems. Um, They're still reporting very, very few cases and almost no deaths but they closed the subways. That's that's a not a trivial um, exercise. That's all I know. (laughs) Bill, what is the vaccine status in China? What percent are vaccinated? Well, again, they report a very high percentage vaccinated. However, what's very interesting is that they deprioritized their senior citizens. So they prioritized vaccination for their 20 to 20 to 50 year olds. And then they're they're coming back and picking up the senior citizens. So they had up until recently, um, they had about a 15% vaccination rate amongst uh, people 65 and over. Um, they are now going back and picking up this the these uh, the older population, uh, but they it's just this is just new that they're getting the older population. That's part of the reason they've been having tr- having problems. Yeah, that's very surprising. That's backwards of what what most countries did, because those that are elderly have the highest risk of severe disease, and therefore they should be vaccinated first. Well, the the Chinese philosophy was was vaccinate those who are the the units of production first. And by the way, just a final point on this bill, but uh, the vaccines that have been deployed uh, in China are um, different than Moderna and Pfizer. They've deployed primarily Sinovac and Sinopharm, which are they're some they're similar to the um, AstraZeneca vaccine in this type of vaccine, but they have not been demonstrated to be anywhere near as efficacious. I mean, they work, but they're not they're they're not that efficacious. It's very difficult because we have companies that have um, people working in in Shanghai and Beijing. It's very difficult to get an mRNA vaccine in China. Uh, they are trying to make their own, but last I've heard, they do not. They have not fielded an mRNA vaccine. Fred, Bill, once again, thanks for the time, the insights. Appreciate your staying on top of things for us, and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation um, in two weeks, and obviously earlier if something material arises. Stay safe, guys. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. 
sign up for our coronavirus solution, visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.